And for the last several sessions, we've been looking at, uh, at God the Father, the first person of the Holy Trinity. Why do we call God the Father the, per the first person of the Trinity? It's because he's the biggest and the best and the, and the first one to show up on the scene. No, that would be that would be heresy. Uh, no, God the Father is is first just just by number, right? It, it's kind of like how I have I have six children, and you know I have a first child who's here right now, and uh, and I don't love her more than any of the others. She's not more human than any of the others. She's not uh, she's not more uh, anything really, but she is a person. Yes, okay. She's the she's the first person of my children, right? Um, but. The, the, the distinction would be she does not share in uh, she does not share in one in one being with the others. Yes, um, she's a unique person, uh, and the, the persons of the Trinity are unique. Yes, uh, but they share in one divine essence and one divine uh, substance. Today we're going to turn our attention to the second verse of the Trinity, who is Jesus Christ, uh, His only Son, our Lord. Um, we're on question forty-nine in the Catechism. Uh, and I don't know what page that is in these paperback copies. I don't think they measure up. Um, what is it? It's 42 in the leather bound and 30 in the other one. Excellent. All right. Um, the Creed, having, having talked about God the Father, turns to, and remember this is the Apostles' Creed, turns in Article 2 to the person of Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the eternal Word and Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He took on human flesh to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world, the only mediator between God and fallen mankind. Okay. This is the most basic teaching on who Jesus Christ is. The second person of the Trinity is, uh, is the divine Word. Um, scripture speaks, for instance, uh, uh, John chapter 1, for instance, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Well, what's the beginning? Is it a start date for the, for, the, for the Godhead? No, no, no. Beginning means all time and forever. Um, Jesus Christ is the eternal Word. Um, uh, the, 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 um, the Nicene Creed says, the only begotten Son of God which means that, that the, the Father is eternally begetting uh, the Son. Now, this is language of generation. It's language of a kind of, um, well, you know this from Scripture, right? Because when we get to those long genealogies, what do we read? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. What does it mean? Well, I have, I have sons, yes, and I've got some daughters too, and, and they come forth from me. Yes, and my wife as well. Um, but the Son it comes forth from the Father eternally, meaning there's no beginning and no end, um, and shares in his substance. Yes? That's why we say in the Nicene Creed that the, the Son is of one substance with the Father. He shares in that substance. That word is eternally proceeding. Um, Jesus Christ is the eternal Word and Son of God. Now, by Son, we don't also mean that, we don't mean in the sense like that that the son is a son like we have sons, right? Because the son is not conceived in his divine nature. He's conceived in what nature, though? It's human nature, and we'll say more about that as we go forward. 
but the Son of God is the second person of the Holy Trinity. He took on human flesh. Now, this is this is the most amazing part here. Okay. The eternal Word of God has always existed from all time and forever. Takes on human flesh, joins a, a, another nature to His divine nature. Forever, takes on human flesh to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world. Such that we say that that person with the Trinity has a dual nature, two natures, both human and divine. The only to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world, the only mediator between God and fallen mankind. Now, this is what's unique about Jesus Christ, yes? So when the church speaks of the uniqueness of Christ, what we mean is, has anyone else ever had two natures, a human and divine? No, no. <laughs> uh, what does that dual nature do? How does it function? We're going to say a lot about this, but I just want to give you a bit of a preview. Okay. Ah. Makes Jesus the perfect priest. Because what is a priest? A mediator, yes? One who stands um, between God and man. Um, one who, uh, who, who is, is, a, is a kind of go-between. Um, and Jesus fulfills his role perfectly. All others fulfill it imperfectly. Jesus fulfills it perfectly because it's, it's in his person, in the divine person of the Son, that this takes place. He's the only mediator. Um, you know, Peter at one point in the Acts of the Apostles says, there is no other name by which, by which we can be saved. And he literally means that. There's nothing else that's ever happened that even remotely close to this. Um, this is the only way. Um, what does Jesus mean? Jesus means God saves and is taken from the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. In Jesus, God has come to save us from the power of sin and death. In the great tradition of, of naming your Jewish son after one of the great uh, leaders of Israel or one of the great prophets, uh, Mary and Joseph are told by divine command to name their son after whom? The, the great biblical figure Joshua. What does Joshua do? Fit the Battle of Jericho, yes. Well, this was after he crossed the Jordan, yeah? And led the people through the Jordan uh, uh, and sent spies in and all these, these are wonderful stories. But, but he leads the people to the land of promise, um, which is not just kind of like, oh, oh, great, we've got all this good land. The land of promise is a land in which the people will meet and worship God. Um, it's, a, it's a land of glory. Um, and so Mary and Joseph named their son Joshua. This should not be missed. But Mary, Mary would have called to Jesus by the name Yeshua. Um, and what we mean by this is, is, and this word means God saves. There's a reason that, um, that Joshua is called to lead the people out, and his name means this. Uh, and in Jesus, God has come to save us from the power of sin and death. Saves us. And just as he has a Hebrew name, what does he also have? A Greek name, too. There's a reason for that. <laughs> because uh, as as we read, and we read this consistently in the New Testament, that, that in Jesus we have this wonderful meeting of the Greek and Jewish worlds, actually. There's kind of a, an incredible thing that takes place. Um, Jew and Gentile come together in one body in the church. 
um, and, and this is part of what Paul's speaking about. He says, in, in, he's, he's made one new man in place of the two. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility. This is only between God and man, but also between, between Jew and Gentile. Jew and Greek is another way to put it. So what does Christ mean? Christos is a Greek word meaning anointed one. Old Testament kings, priests, and prophets were anointed with oil. Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit to perfectly fulfill these roles, and he now rules as God's prophet, priest, and king over his church and all creation. Um, often biblical uh, scholars will speak of this, 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 uh, this uh, tri-vocational role of Jesus, right? This prophet, priest, and king. If you actually read the Old Testament, you'll see that many, many people fulfill two of those roles or one of those roles, but not usually three. Right? The closest you might get is David. Right? David fulfills a role as, as, um, as certainly a prophet within the Jewish tradition, absolutely a king, and also in a weird sense fulfills a priestly role, but it's always kind of a farce, isn't it? David will put on priestly garments. Um, he'll put on the ephod, and you'll always think, he really shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> and he'll stand before the ark, and he'll, he'll dance before the ark wearing the ephod, and you'll think, David, what are you doing, man? <laughs> You're not really a priest. So there's always this kind of obscuring, but what do we see in Jesus? He perfectly fulfills all of those roles. And all of those roles are anointed roles. Um, and, and you read of this, you know, constantly in the Old Testament, we've been, reading, we've been reading the daily office, the accounts from 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, of the anointing of Solomon. Um, and Solomon is taken down to the, to the spring of Gihon, and he's anointed by the priests as king in David's place. Um, and, and this involves a lot of oil. <laughs> it's not just like a dab on the forehead. Okay, what is it? It's like breaking a jar of oil up and just pouring it all over him. Okay. Um, today, even, kings and queens are anointed. Um, someday, Queen Elizabeth will, will, will die. And, and what a mess. But, but, uh, but, but her, son, her son will be anointed in her place. And he will actually be anointed by the Archbishop of Canterbury with the oil of chrism, which is the very oil with which priests are anointed in the prayer book tradition, with which confirmands are anointed in, the confirma in, in confirmation. And also, if you were here for the consecration of this building, uh, the altar was consecrated with chrism on, on, the, on the four corners in the center of the altar with the sign of the cross. Um, in this month, the, uh, the baptismal font will be anointed with oil. Um, I went to an ordination yesterday, and the priest's hands were anointed with the oil in the sign of the cross. And the bishop also uh, blessed all of his kind of chalices and things and went through with oil, made the sign of the cross in the bowl of the chalice. Um, this is to say that, that anointing, and this is, an, this is an important thing for you to get. In the Greek world, anointing and gift and, and uh, you may know this in Greek, uh, chrism, chrismata, uh, charis, those words are related, and they mean gift. Oil is a gift. So, so Jesus is a gift, an anointed gift to his people. All right, so you ready? Why is Jesus called the Father's only Son? Jesus alone is God the Son, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He alone is the image of the invisible Father, the one who makes the Father known. 
He is now and forever, and we regard it as a human, bearing his God-given human name. The Father created and now rules all things in heaven and earth through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, let's break this down. Okay, we've said this before, but the person of Jesus Christ is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. Uh, meaning that we don't speak in terms of the Son being a human being who's adopted into the Godhead. Okay, that's heresy. We also don't speak of there being a time when Christ was not. That's also heresy, called Arianism. Uh, we also do not speak of a, of a, of a way in which, uh, which the Son is, is less than or, or unequal to or subordinate to the Father. Unless you think that these are, these are arcane uh, debates. There are actually ongoing debates in evangelical America about whether the Son is eternally subordinate to the Father or not. Okay. Orthodox Christians say, not. <laughs> okay, get it? This is really important. He alone is the image of the invisible Father. This is language lifted directly out of, first Col of, of Colossians chapter 1. Um, he is the image, or in, in the Greek there, is, he is the icon of the invisible God. So um, let, me, let me make this really clear. If, if you were to see Jesus, what would you say about that? You've seen God, right? We would never say, oh, I saw his human nature. It was amazing. Because as you could read in the Athanasian Creed, you don't want to separate out that one nature from the whole. He's one divine person. So here's the thing. In Jesus, we see God. I mean, think of Thomas in the 21st chapter of, of John's Gospel. Does he kneel before Jesus and say, Oh, glorious human nature, <laughs> you know, how wonderful thou art? And what does he say? He says, My Lord and my God. Um, and this is often the most scandalous part of what we teach about Jesus. Um, I remember, and, and this was this was some years ago, and we were developing the catechism, and we'll get to this. But there was a there was a question, and, and one of the bishops, a, a, a senior bishop, stood up and said, "This would seem to say that that God died on the cross, and we wouldn't want to say that, would we?" And I was defending the catechism before the bishops, and I said, "Actually, bishop, that's exactly what we say." So, bishop, that's the gospel. Um, it's not often that a young priest gets to put a bishop in his place, but I did, because <laughs> that's the gospel, yes? It was very sad. I mean, even good bishops need to be catechized. Um, but that's how much we've lost in not talking about this, clearly, unambiguously. Um, we say, yes, God died on the cross, because you can't separate the nature in Christ. And we speak so, so confidently of, the, of our inability, of the inability for those natures to be separated ever, that we say he is now and forever will be incarnate as a human. When we say that he ascended to the right hand of the Father, we mean very, very, very unambiguously that right now at the right hand of the Father, there is a human being with human eyeballs beholding the glory of God. Oh. Do you see where our hope lies as Christians? That's it. This is why Augustine calls this the beatific vision, the blessed vision of God. Um. This is, this, is, uh, this is to say that, that what, what Jesus goes and does as a forerunner on our behalf is laid out as our future as human beings. Right? Um, he is now and forever will be incarnate as a human bearing his God-given human name. 
The Father created and now rules all things in heaven and earth through Jesus Christ our Lord, and that is why we call him Lord and King. The, the, the kingly status of Jesus uh, is, is in place because all of heaven and earth is ruled through Jesus. All right, let's move on. What do you mean when you call Jesus Christ Lord? I acknowledge Jesus' authority over the church and all creation, over all societies and their rulers, and over every aspect of my personal, social, professional, recreational, and family life. I surrender my life to him and seek to live every part of my life in a way that pleases him. All right. So, well, where can we start? Okay, well, let's start from both ends. Let's start from the Jewish end, and then we'll go to the, we'll go to the, the Greek and Roman end. From the Jewish end, every time you read the Old Testament, you come across a little bit of a speed bump, and you'll read in all capital letters in the English translations, the Lord said. Okay, the Lord did this, the Lord did that. And it's a translation not of what we read in the Hebrew, but of what we read in the markings above the Hebrew word, which is that four-letter word that we don't say, or I try not to say, but it's the markings for the word Adonai, which in Hebrew means Lord. So when we read those, we read a translation of the word Lord, not of what's actually there in the Hebrew, because that's the, the four-letter name of God. Okay. So Jews understand that, that, and I'll say it now, that Yahweh is the Lord of all, heaven and earth. Okay. And when, when first-century Christians call Jesus Christ Lord, what do they mean? They mean that this God whom we encounter in the Old Testament is Jesus. There's, that's God. Um, now, let's go about it from the, from the Roman and Greek end. In the first century, coins were printed that in Greek say, Caesar is Lord. Okay? Why? All of Roman law is based upon this very basic idea and identity that Caesar is, is a god and indeed from the first century on to the third century and into the fourth, a little bit, um, Christians are forced, as are all Roman, Roman uh, well, I shouldn't say citizens, but, but, but subjects of Rome, to offer sacrifice before an image of Caesar as Lord. And for Christians, this was so offensive that they refused to offer even one grain of incense before Caesar. Now, there were some that, that apostatized. Uh, but many, many, many Christians met their deaths because they refused to say otherwise that Jesus was Lord. So when Christians in the first century, and this is said over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus is Lord is not some sort of like uh, uh, sterile uh, kind of statement about who Jesus is. It is an act of, um, of apostasy from the Roman cult. Um, it's an act of treason. So, and even today, to say Jesus is Lord is an act of treason. Because if Jesus is Lord, then who isn't? Anyone else, yeah. The United States government, the President of the United States, uh, kings, whatever it is. Um, no one has more power. Um, so we got that? This is, I mean, this is scandalous stuff going on in the New Testament. 
Okay, so when Paul says you know, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, he's not talking about kind of a nice little religious belief. He's talking about a total revolution of all empires in the whole world and the overthrowing of every king and every earthly power. Got it? Okay. So the New Testament is not this kind of nice little, oh, how nice that is. No, it's, 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 it's a treasonous statement. Okay. Um, well, think about it too. When Jesus brought, when he's brought a coin to pay it to, to say, you know, whose whose image is on the coin? Remember this, and it's Caesar's. That's what's offensive to Jews. They're saying, well, you know, we can't use a coin that says Caesar is Lord. Are you crazy? And what is it that Jesus says? Whose image is on the coin? Well, give it to him. This is a claim of of his lordship over Caesar. Um, that's an important thing. All right, so we acknowledge Jesus' authority over the church and all creation, over all societies and their rulers, and over every aspect of my personal, social, professional, recreational, and family life. Uh, Archbishop Beach has this wonderful talk that he gives because it was given to him and it changed his life, but, but about how if you think of your life as a chest of drawers, you've got, you know, your, your, uh, your school drawer and you've got your... Uh, your, your home drawer, and you got your family drawer, and you might say, well, here, Jesus, have a couple drawers. Jesus is going to say, okay, give me one more, until they're all in his arms. Because he doesn't want a compartmentalized lordship over you. The whole thing or nothing. Um, and so that's an important thing to keep in mind, is that uh, to say Jesus Lord means nothing gets hidden, nothing gets held back, nothing gets reserved. There is nothing that is not sacrificed and surrendered. Um, and, and I would say to you today, uh, you know, the most, the most important question before us as human beings is, is the question, have you surrendered all to Jesus? There's no more important question for you to answer. I surrender my life to him and seek to live every part of my life in a way that pleases him. All right. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. How was Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit? Through the creative power of the Holy Spirit, the eternal Son assumed a fully human nature from his mother, the Virgin Mary, in personal union with his fully divine nature at the moment of conception in Mary's womb. All right. Okay, there's a lot going on here, but I'm going to break it down for you. Through the creative power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, in Scripture, um, God creates through the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, and, and so uh, this is to say that, that, that God brings into, into, into uh, brings this to pass by the Holy Spirit and not through any human means. That's really what's being said here. It's like, <laughs> Jesus has no earthly father. Um, Jesus was not conceived through sex, basically. Um, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, we would have, you know, you, you often, you should, you should call Mary, in a sense, the spouse of the Holy Spirit. This child is conceived by the Holy Spirit. And we say that the eternal son, so this son who has always existed throughout time and forever, assumed a fully human nature from his mother, the Virgin Mary. This is absolutely essential. 
This human nature is not specially created in a test tube for Jesus. Okay? It's given to him entirely by his mother. This is important, right? Because this human nature is not created somewhere in a lab, but is rather given to him by a human being. So what does that tell us? He's, Jesus is, is a son of man, yes? Jesus is actually a son of, human being, of a human being. Not in an artificial way, but in a real way. Um, so when, um, when Jesus calls her his mother, he's not kidding around. That's the truth. That's really true. That's it. He receives his entire human nature from her. Um, he is a son of Israel. That's another important thing, too. Um, he's the son of a daughter of Israel. That matters. Um, in personal union, now this is very technical theological language that actually should be said in a more, uh, in a more theological way, but, but it suffices to say that this union is personal. The, the church has a teaching uh, on what's called the hypostatic union, and hypostatic simply means person. So hypostasis in Greek means person. Um, and uh, this, this teaching comes out of the, uh, what we call the Tome of Leo, so 451, uh, the Council of Chalcedon, um, the Pope Leo I writes a letter to the, to the Council and spells out this personal union of the two natures um, in Christ. And this is called, the, it's very simple, the hypostatic union, personal nature, the personal union between the two natures. And I think if you have a copy of like the 1979 prayer book, you can actually look this up, this language of the hypostatic union. Um, but it's, it's equally contained in the, in the Athanasian Creed. It's simply to say that, that the, the union is full this union between the two natures um, and means that we can't abstract one, one nature from the other because they exist in the person. So when we speak of, when we speak of the person of the Son, and this is important, and I'll say more about this as we go forward, but we should never say things like when we read Scripture, oh, that's Jesus in his human self doing this. Like, oh, look, Jesus is in agony in the garden. He's just being human is what he's being there. That's... You know, he's not being God, he's just being human. Okay, these aren't masks he takes on and off, right? These, these are natures that he constantly has. They're, they're, they exist in one, in one person. When does this, when does this uh, personal union or hypostatic union take place? When he's born? At conception, at the moment of conception. Um, that actually is very informative to us today. When does human life begin? At conception. When did Jesus' human life begin? At conception. Okay. So let's just be very clear. Um, this is why this is why uh, you know kind of boilerplate pro-life languages from conception to natural death. Um, and in a sense, the idea that uh, a fully conceived person is not a human being or not doesn't have a human nature until later is a kind of Christological heresy. Or at least it would seem to defend a Christological heresy. Okay. Um, he receives his divine nature at the moment of his, of his conception. Um, it, of course, we see this in Scripture, don't we? Three months pregnant, Mary goes to the little country of Judea. She visits her, her, her cousin Elizabeth, and, and there's this recognition of the living God inside of her. I actually think Luke is actually depicting Mary as the Ark of the Covenant. Which is 
awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> and I think it's actually just like so verifiable. You can read first, uh, you can read Second Samuel chapter eight and read Luke chapter one together and see this. Luke's actually telling us something very important. Question 55, was Mary the only human parent of Jesus? Yes, Mary is held in honor for she submitted to the will of God and bore the Son of God as her own son. However, after God told Joseph of Mary's miraculous conception, Joseph took Mary as his wife and they raised Jesus as their son. Okay. So Mary is held in honor, in fact, a very, a very special kind of honor, um, for she submitted to the will of God. Remember, this is, this is what Luke depicts taking place, right? The angel appears to Mary, and what, is the, what does the angel say? Hail, favored one. And Mary kind of ponders in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. <laughs> and, and, and what does she say after the angel talks to her? and says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. His name will be called Jesus. What, is, what does she say? She says, let it be done to me according to all that you've said. She consents. This is really important. She consents to the word of God spoken to her by an angel. And what happens? The, the word takes root in her body. This should tell us something about what the nature of Christian believing and faith, yes? Same thing happens to you and me, yes? The word is spoken, rings in our ears. We receive the implanted word, which is able to save our souls, which we'll say a little bit more about later on today in the reading from James. Uh, uh, and, and, and it takes root. Um, now, we are not conceiving sons of God in our wombs. I don't have one. Uh, but there it is. Um, she bore the Son of God as her own son. Um, and so this is, this is actually an important thing to say. This is why we call Mary the mother of God. Because you can't abstract this, you can't abstract the divine nature from the human nature. There's one person. And just as we say God died on the cross, we also say God has a mother. Now, it's not to say the Godhead originates in Mary, because that's not at all what we're saying. What we're saying is that in this hypostatic union, this personal union between, between the two natures, we can say emphatically that Mary is the mother of God. It's really important. Uh, there's a kind of uh, theological principle called the, um, the um, communicatio idiomatum. It's this idea that the idioms actually translate back and forth about the Son, um, and that when you start to refuse to translate those idioms back and forth or communicate those idioms, what do you wind up in? Error. You've got to say both about them. And we'll say, say that here. What is the relationship between Jesus' humanity and his divinity? Jesus is both fully and truly God and fully and truly human. The divine and human natures of Jesus' person may be distinguished but can never be separated, changed, or confused. All that Jesus does as a human being, he also does as God. And before he ever became human, he was eternally living and active within the unity of the Holy Trinity. Okay. All right, let's go through this. Jesus is both fully human, fully divine. Okay? Um, there is not a single way that you are human that he is not human. Okay. I made this mistake when I was taking canonical exams for ordination. Uh, someone asked me, what are the components of human nature? And I slipped up and I said, sin. And my mentor, Ken John Hyde, an Oxford-trained theologian, said, ah, stop. <laughs> and he, he railed on me, no. Sin is not an essential part of human nature. Uh, uh, if that was true, then Jesus would not be human. No, 
was like, yeah, cold pot. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> I'm wrong. <laughs> I was wrong about that. Um, but that's the truth, right? That sin is actually not a part of human nature. Um, sin is a part of fallen human nature. You see what's, what's being said here? Sin does not make you human, friends. Um, to err is not human, actually. Oh, that's lovely. The divine and human natures of Jesus' person may be distinguished. So this is important. We can, we can speak of the distinguishing of the natures, but can never be separated, changed, or confused. Um, so we can say that, um, that Jesus shares flesh and blood in his human nature, yes, so, you know, uh, if, you, if, you, if you cut him, he'll bleed, yes? Um, that's, that should be obvious from the, from the scriptural testimony regarding him. Um, if, you, if you crucify him, he'll die. Um, can you kill the Godhead? No. But if you have a personal union between the human and divine natures, can you kill God? Yes. That's, that's, that's the hinge upon which the gospel stands. And this is why there are many, like C.S. Lewis, who have said, the incarnation, this perfect union between the, the human and divine natures, is the door through which you enter Christian believing. Isn't that, isn't that, a, that's, that's, that's kind of incredible when you think about it. Um, and I, I actually think that's the truth. If you, if you accept that this is what happened in Jesus, uh, that, that uh, human and divine natures come together, then, then the whole thing opens up. Um, all of it, actually. <laughs> and I actually find that some people have actually a hesitation regarding certain Christian doctrine, and it's not because they have a hang-up about that one doctrine. It's they have a hang-up about the incarnation. Right? You have some questions about, is Jesus really Lord? Uh, you know, can Jesus tell me how to have sex? You see the problem? Well, if he's not really God, then, then uh, you know, no. And also, if he's not really a human being, then he's kind of dissociated from that, yes? But if you believe in the incarnation, then absolutely, Jesus is Lord. You, 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 and you don't get to, you don't get to, uh, to uh, negotiate <laughs> at that point. All that Jesus does as a human being, he also does as God. So we ought not read the Gospels and say, oh, look at Jesus, multiplied loaves and fishes. You know, this is God acting. Only God's doing this, not, not Jesus' human nature, his ucky, icky human nature that does yucky things, like poop. Okay? No, 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 no. Jesus' miracles are done by his divine person with two natures. In fact, that's what's so wonderful about the miracles, yeah? That these are done just as much by a human being as they are by God. Before he ever became human, and this is an important part as well, before he ever became, became human, he was eternally living and active within the unity of the Holy Trinity. So what we're saying here is that, well, against Arius, there's never been a time when Christ was not. Um, Jesus eternally begotten of the Father. All right. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why did Jesus suffer? Jesus suffered for our sins so that we could have peace with God as prophesied in the Old Testament. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Is that 
wonderful quote from Isaiah chapter 53. Um, Jesus suffered to fulfill the Old Testament. That might seem to be a rather obvious statement, but think about it for a moment. What happens in that Old Covenant that God makes with Abraham? What's that? Endless sacrifices. It seems to be part of it. There there are really three things that happen in God's covenant with Abraham. God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. So this name of Abraham will be great. But it's not just that. It's the name of his nation, Israel. What else? God gives Abraham... Descendants, okay? So, so descendants that are as many as the sand of the seashore and the stars of the sky. Um, and, and, and declares that through his seed, the whole, nation, the whole world will be blessed. Okay? So by these descendants, the whole world will be blessed. Well, who's a descendant of Abraham? Jesus. Um, he's also given the land... And this is the land upon which, Jesus, upon which Abraham is standing when this happens, is right where, it's right in the same city where this event, this crucifixion takes place. Um, that is to say that what is at the heart of the covenant with Abraham is really simple. It's God saying to Abraham, I give you everything that I have, and everything that you have is mine. And God shows Abraham that this is the case by asking Abraham to do something rather dramatic. What is it? To sacrifice his son. Um, And what is it that God says about this? Um, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Why? Because he did not withhold his only son. How do we see the righteousness of God? in that he does not withhold his only son from us. Um, There you have it. The covenant is made good by the blood of Christ. It's it's completed. And so this isn't just kind of like the Old Testament said it would happen, so it happened, and then and then boo-boo. No, it's more than that. It's way more than that. It's that... It's that that covenant is brought to an end. N.T. Wright talks about this by saying that what, what, what is required for a covenant to be completed is a death of one side or the other. Right? They have to die. Well, what happens in Jesus? Both sides of the covenant die, and the covenant is brought to completion by, both, by the death of both God and man together in one person. Do you see? This is what Paul's talking about constantly. Uh, really one new man in place of the two. The new covenant is really simple. It's Jesus. This is God's, this is God's, um, this is God's will for all human life, to be conformed to the image of Christ forever and for eternity. So that's, that's God's will for your life, is to have your human nature joined to his divine nature. Yes? Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Okay. Um, and this is why this, this is initiated through this brutal death. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
Sin stands in the way, and sin has to be punished. In what ways did Jesus suffer? On earth, the incarnate Son shared physically, mentally, and spiritually in the temptations and suffering common to all people. In his agony and desolation on the cross, he suffered in, many, in my place for my sins, and in so doing displayed the self-denial I am called to embrace for his sake. Um, I need to say before this that Anglicans have a lot of room for a lot of different atonement theories, right? But one of the ones that consistently comes up, because we're good, we're, we're good, uh, we're good Reformation Christians, is this idea of substitutionary atonement. That Christ is sacrificed in my place for my sins as a substitution. Perfectly good way to think about it. But uh, as, as our friend Janius Johnson says, there are many atonement theories that put at it because, um, well, the atonement's not simple, is it? It's a very complex thing. Um, there's no one way to describe it. There are a bunch of ways to describe it. But Jesus, this is, this is what the New Testament tells us, is that Jesus shares, he is not unable to sympathize with our weakness, but shares in every way, is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, is what Hebrews says. Um, shared in the shared and not just shared physically but shared mentally spiritually the anguish of sin um, shared in the sufferings common to all and on the cross in agony and desolation he suffered in my place um, think about what Jesus says from the cross My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This desolation. Um, but I'm sure that in your own life you can think about it for just a little while and think of when you felt that desolation. Um, when you felt that God has forsaken you. Um, and, and I should as well say that Jesus knows it all too well. Um, and, and is right there with you. What does the Roman, what does the creed say, why does the creed say that Jesus suffered under the Roman governor Pontius Pilate? The creed thus makes clear that Jesus' life and death were real events that occurred at a particular time and place in Judea in the first century A.D. Right. Um, the creed is making, by saying that he suffered under, under Pontius Pilate, the creed is making a claim about history, an event as verifiable as any other event in history. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's interesting that historians, uh, especially secular historians, will, will say, well, you know, that's just what the New Testament says, but it's not very reliable. Okay, <laughs> okay hang on just a second. Do you know how many New Testament texts we have from the, from the second and third centuries? It's an unbelievable and enormous amount of texts. And compared to certain first and second century documents, it's an unbelievable pile compared to maybe one or two copies of other things that people say, oh yeah, well that happened. But Jesus dying on a cross, yeah, not quite sure about that. That might, that might not have happened, or it, it probably didn't. That's, that's insane. I mean, this, is, this, this, this thing is either a historic event or all of history is suspect. Um, it would, it, would, it would be like saying that, that some of the conspiracy theories regarding the, the, the assassination of John F. Kennedy 
uh, could start to say, yeah, but did he really die? <laughs> I mean, come on. I, I'm seeing the video here, but, you know, really? Uh, it's that level of incredulity. Okay. So that's an important thing to say, is that, that when Christians speak of who Jesus is, they're talking about history. Um, God entering into human history um, and entering into, into time. Um, the other thing that I'd say about this, too, is that uh, there are many people who have said, especially through the last 125 years, probably more than that now, uh, that, you know, if, if Christians sort of found out that none of this ever happened, there could still be a Christian faith. You know, it'd be, it'd be a, we'd live, you know, these are Germans doing this. It's not all Germans, but, but a lot of Germans, okay? Uh, saying, you know, if we somehow dug up the, the, the crucified body of Jesus, and, and there was an ossuary that said, this is Jesus Christ who some people raised from the dead, but here he is in this ossuary, ha, 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 ha. Okay. And that was somehow verified, which, you know, I, I'd kind of say, yee, I mean, I'd have more suspicion for the box than for the scriptures, uh, because other things just don't—they just don't add up. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, that it was the, the the body of Jesus was just sort of dug up, and we could absolutely verify that that's who that is. I'd unbutton my cassock, I'd walk down the aisle, I'd throw this on the floor, I'd light a match. And I'd never come back. That's it. There's no other reasonable thing to do. Um, because, because the historic claim of Christianity is, it all hinges on that. If this didn't happen, we are wasting our time. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 about the resurrection. He said, this didn't happen. We are of all men to be pitied as, as fools. Um, waste of time, complete waste of time. I mean, I'll go live as some kind of noble pagan. Might be, maybe not even noble, frankly. <laughs> but, but that's the answer, yes? So, so the historicity of Jesus matters. It matters immensely. Um, and I would even say that, that the biblical accounts of what happens um, are, are important to note, are, are historical as well. Um, there, was a, there was a thing called the Jesus Seminar in, in, in recent decades where biblical scholars would sort of vote, you know, red light, green light, orange light, did this, you know, feeding the 5,000, did this actually happen? Let's all vote. What do we think? Um, you know, it's sort of saying that scripture can have veracity outside of its historicity. And, and I just think, you know, Christians have never said that. We've always said, no, this, this happened. Like, this, is a, this actually happened under Pontius Pilate. Um, so there it is. Any questions before we close? Okay. Next week we will pick up with uh, Jesus' crucifixion, his death, his descent among the dead, and probably we'll get to his resurrection as well. This is, this is often, and I'll just prepare you for this, this is often one of the most earth-shattering teaching moments for some people um, who said, I didn't even know we Christians believed that. Um, but we'll get to it. You're going to have fun. Okay. We'll begin with the Eucharist shortly.